Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory. But boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So welcome to Face to Face, and uh, joining us today is uh, Robert Jostra from uh, the Cardis uh, Institute. He is an editor for Cardis uh, Policy and Public. He's completing his uh, PhD in Religious Freedom, that's interesting, and International Relations, um, and we'll let him tell us a little bit more about that. And he also, uh, in his spare time, uh, lectures uh, and teaches at Redeemer University College. So thanks for joining us, Rob. 
Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and are you okay with Rob? I, I should have clarified that earlier. Yeah, no, all good, all good. Yeah. Well, so, now that yeah. you're getting a doctorate, you know, you might prefer Robert. So Yeah, uh, I'll have everyone call me Dr. Joustra for about 10 days, and then it'll probably get old. Yes, yes. <laughs> or, or in some cases, sir, actually, probably would be probably more appropriate. Just, that's right, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> so, so, Rob, uh, you've got a pretty interesting past already. You're a young guy. Uh, you're funny. You're an incredibly good writer, I have to say. I, uh, uh, Rob has uh, been writing for the Globe and Mail for the last little while. While he's uh, very active and frankly, I mean, is it fair to say prolific at this point? But uh, I don't know if I've quite reached that point. Yeah, yet, yeah. <laughs> we may have to redefine it. But yeah. but some really wonderful stuff in the last little while. Two pieces that I'm I've uh, just uh, uh, recently read, published uh, uh, late last year, was it or uh, February? Uh, I think yeah, I think around then maybe. Yeah, 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 and a couple of just great pieces in the Toronto Globe and Mail. So um, look them up if you can. And um, he works with Cardis, and that's. Cardus, C-A-R-D-U-S dot C-A is their website. So, Rob, what uh, what's foreign policy? <laughs> Good question. Uh, this is something we actually sort of uh, chat about a fair bit whenever I, I have this conversation at uh, Redeemer. I mean, in, in some ways, uh, what is foreign policy can is often a kind of sort of reductive conversation, if I can use that sort of language. Um, uh, some people like textbooks, or if you're having this kind of more academic conversation, will say, well, uh, foreign policy are these sort of uh, uh, official uh, official outcomes from kind of uh, state channels, you know, so what a prime minister says or a president says. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in our case, more what a prime minister says, of course, in the United States, uh, that can be uh, can be a bit conflicting um, in terms between the president and the Senate and so forth. But but really, I mean, I think the more interesting answer to that question is that um, uh, foreign policy is a whole range of different actors, and sometimes they're not only uh, sometimes those actors are not only kind of incoherent; they're also sometimes incompatible. Mm. Uh, and so you have not just you know members of parliament, uh, you know uh, ministers and prime ministers, but you also have non-governmental organizations. Uh, then you have multinational corporations, then you have civil society, um, then you have, you know, uh, groups, uh, student advocacies, these different kinds of things. And uh, and what this can add up to is actually a fairly confusing picture. Um, so sometimes when, you know, people tell me, you know, they're, um, you know, they're against Canadian foreign policy or more likely they're kind of anti-American. Right. I right. usually say, well, what does that actually mean? Um, you know, do not like the president, uh, right. do not like multinational corporations, do not like, you know, a couple of different civil institutions. It's not clear because a lot of these things really, they don't like each other either. Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, um, so it's really quite a mixed bag. Um, so for me, I mean, we actually spend a lot of time just kind of complicating that question, uh, if you will, which is maybe not the most helpful and discreet answer, but right, right. <laughs> there it is. So, to, what, to what degree do you think that uh, foreign policy and foreign policy decisions and so on, and I guess they're synonymous to some degree, mm. are today being driven more by the bottom line than they are by the sanctity of human life? Right. Well, I mean, I think there is uh, there is a sense in which there's been a pragmatic. You know, term. you know what's what I mean, like the 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 CETA question of late, Julian Fantino. Yeah. Well, Canadians aren't getting the results they want. You right. Know, what's in it for Canada to be boots on the ground in Mali and so on? You know, what's in it for us? Yeah. Um, yeah. And just today there was an announcement of some funding there. I think it was. 13 million. I'm not sure. I'm just remembering the story from this morning. Um, uh, but right, there's a, there's a renewed emphasis, especially in terms of development from this government on outcomes. Yes. Uh, now, I mean, that language is 
part of uh, part of a conversation in human rights dialogue in uh, in humanitarianism, but it's a it's a very different kind of humanitarian conversation. It's driven much more by uh, a kind of business or a pragmatic kind of political paradigm. Um, I wouldn't say it's. Uh, I wouldn't say that there's a there's a deliberate turn. Uh, certainly, the government would never qualify it as a deliberate turn away from humanitarianism. Uh, although uh, it has been difficult to kind of follow the logic of the government on some of these on some of these transitions to more kind of outcome oriented uh, private public partnership uh, stuff. And part of the reason it's been hard to follow the government's logic on this is they just. You know, they haven't been taking. Uh, they haven't been saying very much on it. Right. right. Um, so you know, uh, it could very well be that uh, you know this is a new uh, this is a new kind of strategy to enact. You know, a new era of humanitarianism in Canadian foreign policy. You'd, ne- you'd never know. I mean, you'd never know because they're not really they're not really taking interviews on that. Um, and that's true in a lot of different um, elements actually in Canadian uh, foreign policy right now. Um, so I would, I, but definitely you're right. I mean, I think there is uh, there is a sense in which it's more outcome driven. Those outcomes are being defined more and more um, along sort of uh, uh, using along more sort of corporate paradigms. Yeah. Sure. Well, it's. I think it's kind of a uh, frightening. Is probably overstating it, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I think there's a lack of humanity, you know, attached to the whole notion of a KPI, a key performance indicator. Where's where's the where's the human element in that? Where's the relationship? Where's the community? I mean, maybe now I'm sounding like a, you know, a, a little uh, to an idealistic old fart. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. it seems to me that in order for development to go forward, in order to answer the Dambisa Moyos of the world, and so on. We need to start breathing more humanity into our, our, our work and our foreign policy and yeah. the decisions that we make and, and so on. And, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the one person that comes to mind that really agrees with that is actually Pope Benedict, uh, who in Caritas and Veritate made, um, you know, a very, uh, a very moving uh, sort of plea for uh, the reinsertion of the human into the, into the work of development. I mean, he's the Pope, so of course, I mean, he's also making very explicitly religious arguments, saying, you know, development needs people everywhere with their arms raised in prayer and these other kinds of right. uh, things that he says in that. But but there is this uh, there is this call that I think the Pope makes that there can be no authentic development until we look at what it means to be human right and what it means what human flourishing means and when you when you have uh, a mindset of toward doing development which has a more kind of material or and I'm going to use a kind of strictly economic focus uh-huh. what you've done is you've kind of foreclosed some of those questions and you said you know human flourishing essentially means uh, you know a better GDP right right and you know that's not true in the developing world and it's not true in Canada either um, and uh, and that I think in that I kind of share your sense of of worry uh, for that sentiment. Yeah. Well, it's so it's it's kind of ironic in a way, you know. I uh, I think it's kind of ironic in a way um, that that we're supposedly moving towards a uh, a better and more efficient way of doing things and getting these results, which ultimately you would like to think are connected to humanity mm. and community, you know, connected to developing communities and yeah. and and long term impact. And yet, maybe we're actually uh, squeezing out the very thing that we need more of that we can't actually attach a quantifiable indicator to. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's part of, uh, you know, Weber's iron cage. It's part of this kind of utilitarian ethos that sort of pervades the modern condition, right? You have, we build greater and greater and greater efficiencies on certain kinds of systems, um, but the systems themselves are now unlocked. 
to the original right, intention. Right, right. Right. The telos has been lost. Right, um, right. And when that happens, yes, you do actually still continue to build efficiencies, but now we're starting to ask ourselves, okay, efficiencies for what? Yeah, um, yeah, yes. And I remember I, I asked that question at a certain point uh, in the Globe and Mail on the F-35s debate, um, you know, saying, look, you know, everyone's debating the kind of stealth capacities and payload capacities and, you know, the technology and so on and so forth on these planes. But my question is, you know, uh, do we need these planes for the ends of Canadian foreign policy? What is Canadian foreign policy for? Right. Um, right. You know, do we need a hammer or do we need a skill saw? Well, right. what are we right. building? Right. You know, Good. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we do need these planes. Yeah. But it's not clear to me what exactly uh, that's for. And so I, you know, I... Well, and I think what I love about your, your metaphor is that a hammer can be used to construct and, and break down. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, yep. it's got a claw in it and it's got something that can, you know, drive in a nail. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's great. I, I I think you and I have talked briefly about uh, Pearson's uh, uh, report and commission on international development that was uh, published back in the '60s, I think mm -hmm. 1967. And there's this great. It's one of my. I just grabbed it. I've got a few books on my desk here that I just mm -hmm. pulled off. Um, um, uh, where does he say? "Quote: uh, Attitudes in donor countries often have been affected by misconceptions and unrealistic expectations of quote instant development close quote when sure. we should have known that development was a long-term process." That was 1967. Sure. You know, I mean, we've been asking these questions for a long time, and and we know something's wrong, and it's it it, it, it you know, and and well, I guess where I'm heading is trying trying to dig a little a little bit more into in some, into some of the writing uh, that you've done recently on the, the, the secularism versus um, religion. Mm. And you talk a great deal about that in both of these pieces that you've shared with me. And uh, maybe you can speak about their, you know, their titles and so on if you want to do that. But you mentioned at one point that um, we need to start asking what we believe and why. And I think there's a connection to this idea of, of impact and development and some sure. of the questions that we're currently asking. Or, sorry, maybe not asking. Can, can you comment on the parallels and then kind of dovetail that into a, a conversation about this notion of secularism versus religion? Definitely, yeah. I think I think there is that connection there. Um, I mean, that's that, that, that's part of what I'm trying to drive at, right? In in some of these conversations on secularism, uh, and of course, you know, one has to be careful when you use words like this. Um, yes. When I, I gave. Um, when I was uh, speaking at the Parliamentary Forum on Religious Freedom, I gave nine different definitions of the secular. <laughs> um, wow. so, um, so there's a few of them out there, and many of them mutually contradict, um, right? So often when people kind of raise the specter of secularism, uh, you know, as, as a problem or celebrate secularism as a victory, um, you know, they, they, these things may actually agree. It just depends on, on, what, on, on what you mean by those things. But, um, but one of the things that the secular can do, um, uh, or at least uh, I, I I think but it's certainly the way Charles Taylor uses the term in a secular age is it has foreclosed on some of those uh, incredibly important questions about uh, what it means to be a human person, uh, what it means, what human flourishing means, and all these different kinds of ideas. And so you end up with a kind of utilitarian or pragmatic kind of expectation. Um, so, for example, um, in the medieval period, um, uh, in, the, in sort of Christendom, if you will, there were two sort of perspectives uh, on government that kind of fit together in tension. Um, one of them was that the state was there, government was there to, quote, restrain the licentiousness of man, you know, if I can use that kind of somewhat dated language. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other one was the legitimate adjudication of uh, plurality. 
So, so the government was not, so it's not necessarily anyone's fault. Yves Simon, the, the Catholic philosopher, uses the example of two cars arriving at the same time at an intersection. Who tells who to go first? No one has done wrong by arriving at the same time. We just need to know, um, we just need to know who's going to who's going to go first at that intersection. So um, that's part of uh, that's part of the task of uh, of government in that setting. Uh, and and how that connects, I think, uh, in an important way is now we think about uh, government now, especially if you go into kind of polling attitudes of Canadians. Um, and this is actually slightly different in America, which is hmm. something I find quite interesting. But if you go into uh, attitudes of Canadians, essentially Canadians vote on um, uh, the biggest issue that kind of decides is. Uh, is economic issues. Even when you get into healthcare, it has to do with the money the healthcare is getting and it, these outcome-driven mentalities, right, and so on and so forth. Like the rubric by which we decide if a government has succeeded is very much sort of GDP-driven. Yes. Yeah. You know? And on that rubric, I mean, that's one of the reasons why um, you know when a global recession hits, all of a sudden, uh, you know, a lot of countries in the world start voting conservative. Well, why? Because um, more people trust you know conservatives not to print money. <laughs> Right. Um, and, <laughs> um, and they just want to kind of get things back on track, um, and and that's the kind of that's the kind of mentality, right? Uh, but uh, but the problem is we've essentially shortchanged the moral expectations of our government. Mm, nice. um, and that's interesting because actually in, in, in America, um, and again, there's a whole lot of reasons for this, which take a lot more time to get into, but in America, um, American citizens actually have much grander moral expectations of their executive leadership um, to the point that they expect their president to be pious, to be prayerful. Now, there's all kinds of civil religious kind of stuff that goes into that that I, I don't exactly want to paint it as a success. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but on the other hand, it is interesting to note that, you know, so for example, Moral lapses and uh, uh, or 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 spiritual uh, uh, spiritual leadership, uh, those are all more important in the United States than they are here in Canada. I mean, the very fact that Prime Minister Harper, for example, is an evangelical, happens to go to church, um, that's okay, I guess, but it's more tolerated than it is celebrated. It's certainly not right, essential right, right, for him to be right, elected right. in a way in which it would absolutely be essential in the United States. It's interesting that you say that. So I didn't even make the connection because I was probably uh, really tired, but my wife and I watch uh, The Good Wife uh, on a fairly regular basis. She's a okay. big fan, and I've yeah. become a fan. And uh, last night's uh, episode, or Sunday night's episode was about uh, um, uh, Juliana Margulies' character's husband is, is uh, campaigning mm. against a woman who is an atheist and who is seen on YouTube as not bowing her head during a prayer right. at a religious ceremony. Right. And immediately uh, the publicists for the other guy are saying, yeah, nobody's going to like that. Yeah. No, nobody likes an atheist in yeah. politics. They're okay with it in, in private life, but as soon as you get political, you've, you've got to at least I don't know, show some kind of respect. So that, that's sort of what you're talking about, is it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's, I mean, that's an expectation that exists there in which I think in, in other contexts more, and I'm going to sort of use this word again in scare quotes, secularized contexts like Canada or yeah. France or, say, England or whatever, um, the expectation of the government is much more managerial. Okay. Right? right. Much more managerial. Um, you know, um, provide the services right. uh, competently. Right for which, you know, and so the debate is essentially about what are the limits of those services. Right, so do what right. you do well and properly, but stay the heck out of my bedroom, stay out of my head, yep. and get out of my school. You know what I mean? Is that, yep. that's kind of what you're saying? That's yeah. sort of the, no, well, not yeah. necessarily the schools, that, that gets into something else. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, you know, whereas in America, there's much more that expectation of America is, is going to be a moral force for good in the world. Yes. And therefore, yeah. our leadership needs to be a moral force for good. And it needs to inspire us in an almost pastoral sense. Interesting. Right. In which uh, the president is kind of the high priest, you know, so, the Pontifex Maximus. So, okay, I have, I can't let this one go. So you, you in a pastoral sense, it's wonderful. So uh, do, would you call, would you call the U.S.'s foreign policy pastoral in any way, shape or form? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and guys like, you know, Andrew Preston, um, who's, uh, who's a wonderful historian, works out of Cambridge. He's written this fantastic book. It's just gone to softcover called um, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, huh. um, Religion in American Diplomacy. It's, it is just outstanding. And what he does is he traces, especially even the colonial roots, you know, Winthrop's original sermon of kind of America as a city on a hill, you know, and some of these Puritan roots. Um, and he traces that through American diplomacy. And it's there. Because a lot of people say, I think, inaccurately. Well, you know, um, there were these kind of religious sentiments, and it was George Bush Jr. Um, who kind of injected these things into American politics. Well, that's just not true. I mean, he was borrowing off uh, a profound legacy that's been there, and his rhetoric was actually no more or less terribly religious than a lot of people before right, him. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, that book in particular does, does a great job of, of, you know, demonstrating, you know, the American president serves in some ways as pastor-in-chief um, to a whole, uh, there's this kind of missiological element. And, then, you know, you talk about America as the new Israel, right, bringing the light to the nations. Well, come on, I mean, we've seen this stuff uh, before, uh, and uh, Preston does it just a great job uh, in, the, in that book, kind of drawing out some of those themes in the history. Uh, of course, there are counter-themes and people that kind of oppose that in America as well. I don't mean to, hence, foreign policy being this, you know, inherently kind of fragmented thing in some ways. Yeah. Um, it's not just one simple linear story. It's more of a zigzag. Um, but, uh, but sure, I think, I think that's true. Yeah. So what, what about the critics? What, I mean, come on, you know, somebody might say, Pastor, really? I mean, this, this is a country that's going around, you know, they've got drones that are, they're, they're attacking, uh, con you, know, you know what I mean? Like taking that really negative sort of uh, critical approach to, to the world's most powerful country. Sure. How is sure. that? How is that in any way, you know, uh, um, connected to being pastoral? Or sure. Well, pastors don't have to be pacifists, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that's right. Of I mean, that's, that, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even even looking back at like some of the people that President Obama, for example, has, has publicly expressed his his affection and admiration for Reinhold Niebuhr, right? Who writes yes. Moral Man and Immoral Society in the in the mid twentieth century, one of these foundational texts that helps kind of explain, uh, I think, at least partly, uh, some of the elements of realism. Yep. Um, if I can talk about that in American foreign policy that exists. Um, where you can actually have a foreign policy that's uh, driven in part by these sentiments, yep. uh, by these religious sentiments of a city on a hill and being a light to the nations and you know uh, being the world's peacekeeper and so on and so forth, while at the same time recognizing the limitations of those actions right. and therefore some of the proximate violences that will need to be taken, uh, that will need to be done in order to secure it. Which um, kind of comes yeah. back to, to your comment in your article about, you know, looking at more about why and what we believe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um, I, I don't know if, uh, uh, if you caught the CBC Ideas series that was done this past October, but uh, one of the guys they had on was a guy named Paul Kahn, 
Okay. And uh, I think it was episode five or something. And he, he wrote a book called Political Theology, which was a new uh, a kind of uh, uh, update or a response to Carl Schmitt's uh, original political theology from the mid, uh, mid-20th century. And, um, and part of the argument that he makes in that book, it's, it's really profound that, that that series is, is amazing. Like the whole thing uh, that the CBT idea did was really, really huh. good. Um, just about every episode hit it on the mark. Okay. Um, but um, one of the thing, one of the arguments uh, that that he makes is that uh, essentially uh, political theory, the way he describes it, liberal political theory, uh, is no longer adequate or has never been adequate to actually explain the experience of being an American citizen. That there is this sacred kind of underbelly that exists beneath the concepts of liberal political theory um, that liberal political theory cannot explain. It cannot explain, for example, um, why it is um, that people will not only live, but also die and kill on behalf of the state. Um, you know, uh, I, Bill Kavanaugh writes this book, The Myth of Religious Violence. He has this breathtaking question that sits in the center of it. And the question is, at what point did it become neutral, rational, and praiseworthy uh, to live and to die and to kill for the state, and irrational and dangerous and pathological to live and die for your religion? Hmm. It's great. Right, isn't it? Yeah, it's I mean, very and good. that's what Paul Kahn is trying to kind of go after, you know, because there's a sense in which when you're born into the state, you don't choose it. It's almost like baptism used to be for Christians, right? You don't choose it. It's a covenant. You enter into it. It's not about individual choice. Um, it's about the, the sort of cultic claim that that political intimate entity not only has on your person, but also your life and death. Right. Um, and, um, and that's, I mean, that to me, I mean, uh, really actually starts to help explain in some ways the manifestations, but also powers of modern statehood, at which modern sort of political theory sort of fails. It yeah. can't answer that question because it can't get at those deep, sacred experiences of the state. When somebody says that's just politics, what, what, I mean, it's got this pejorative edge to it. What, yeah. what do they mean by that? Oh, therefore, you know, based on what you just said to me, well, yeah, Rob, it's, yeah, it's, it's politics. You know, in other words, we, we can't do anything about it. I, get, I mean, that's kind of where I go with that. What, what, do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, in some ways, that's just politics. It's also a, it's also a totally, uh, I won't say it's a totally unique experience in the history of humankind, but the way that the state has uh, not only monopolized sort of, uh, especially the cultic powers of kind of life and death in this experience, uh, but also foreclosed on the conversation of it, is relatively unique. I mean, that is relatively unique. And that goes back to, you know, things like the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 and this original kind of separation and invention, I would argue, in the political mythology of liberalism, of the religious and the secular, as these two discrete, different sort of entities, one which doesn't affect the other, and they need to be kept apart for a, for a rational society to kind of uh, ensue. You know, that is a, that is a new thing. Right, and right. that, I think, actually does obscure questions of telos that underlie modern political theory. And by obscuring them, uh, essentially what you end up with, I think, is only a managerial conversation. Right. So our political debates, you know, so for example, here in Canada, we have one party that says, look, we need more market. We have another party that says, look, we need more state. Well, that's not a terribly interesting debate, is it? No, not at all. It's, and it's essentially man- and a managerial debate about how much or how little service this institution called government will provide us. Well, it seems to me, too, to be such an either-or thing. Uh, yeah. when, when, I, when I watch political debate, it's, 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 it's not about 
even trying to meet in the middle. It's not even really about trying to have a dialogue. It's about shooting down the other position. It's about it's about the rhetoric, which I mean in a negative way, not in a positive way. Yeah. And and so you lose any room or space, and so you end yeah. up with people just going, "Well, there you go. Watch, yeah. watch those politicians again. Yeah. You know, they're they, they just don't change, do they? Yeah. You know, and and that to me is tragic. Yeah. Well, it's true, and in, in some ways, the process does itself a, a disservice. I've had I've had people tell me, and I've experienced it myself from my work on the Hill, that um, you know, if you really want to have a political conversation where you get into the ideas and talk policy, and you have a bit of give and take, that doesn't really happen in Parliament. Certainly, doesn't happen in question period. And it doesn't happen between political parties anymore. Hmm. Political parties are. Uh, these sort of marketing vehicles that exist for policy conversations yeah. that happen internally. Do you right? think? Do you think at some point politicians are really cynical people? <laughs> um, I think they're really busy people. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I do think there can be a, a cynicism that comes alongside yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I know a lot of po- politicians that are that are pretty optimistic. Oh. Not terribly optimistic about um, cross-party debate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. There is there is some dourness about that. I, I certainly on our on our Parliament Hill there there is. Um, but optimistic about some of the ideas and how they can be implemented in yeah. policy because those conversations tend to be happening internal to parties. Um, right. Okay. And yeah. there's a lot of fracture inside those parties. I mean, yeah, a lot of people yeah, kind of look sure. at the Conservative Party of Canada, for example, and say, oh, yeah, well, they're all this or all that. Actually, you know, uh, there is a piece written here by our, our president at Cardiff, Michael Van Pelt, and our director of research, Ray Pennings, arguing that there is as many as, as six or seven distinct factions within the sitting Conservative Party, huh. many of whom really hate each other. Wow. <laughs> wow. Right? You think about, think about libertarians and social conservatives sitting in the same room together. They don't agree on almost anything. Yeah, 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 it's true. Right, I mean, so how do these people kind of sit in the same party well, together? Yeah, I mean, if you can't if you can't get on any kind of level playing field, whatever that means, how can you even begin to have a real conversation? I mean, I've yeah. uh, I just I think of students, I think of that aren't listening in a in a in a, in a, in a group setting where we're trying to have a group dialogue, and they're just waiting to get their point in. They're yeah. sitting on the edge of their seat. I mean, you can see it. You, I yeah. mean, you know, viscerally, it's in your face. It's like I don't give a rat's ass about your point. I just want to get my point in. And I wonder sometimes to what degree that's yeah. just that's just kind of the way it is. So healthy healthy cynicism or maybe dose of realism is great, but it's it's encouraging for me to hear and I hope others that that a lot of politicians are optimistic and and it's just it's it's Incremental, right? Real change has got to be incremental, little yeah. little baby steps. You say um that um not every problem, quote, not every problem in the world is religious, but almost every enduring solution will require some level of religious accommodation, right. quote. Um, you say that's a simple observation. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in the first place, the assumption behind uh, that statement is a kind of empirical disproval of uh, the, the, what's called the secularization thesis. Yes. Um, right? So, in the first place, the idea, which was very popular in the 60s and the 70s, that um, religion was essentially disappearing, um, uh, not just as a kind of uh, personal force, that would kind of come later, um, but as a political force. Right. Um, well, uh, empirically speaking, you know, that's more or less not true. Uh, in fact, Peter Berger says in, in one of his very famous essays on the desecularization of the world, he says, today, the fascinating thing to explain is not the religion of the mullahs in Iran, but why religion makes no sense to elite American university professors. Hmm. Right? And I, I actually think that's true. That is the interesting thing to explain, because most and, of 
and world. Rob, is that whether you believe in it or not? Is whether you believe in yeah, it or not, absolutely, right. Fair absolutely, yeah. right. So why you know uh, you know why we ever thought um, that that's what that's what Dan Philpot says in 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 one of his uh, articles on the political ambivalence of religion. Uh, the question is not you know why religion didn't go away or did go away, but why we ever thought it was going away, right? <laughs> Why did we ever think these questions or these sort of ideas were ever actually being? And that actually, that starts to get at some of the assumptions behind social science and secularism and so on and so forth, right, Um, that are quite interesting. Um, So when I say that not every problem in the world is religious, um, you know, it's, it's not... It's not true, of course, that every every conflict or every issue um, is exhaustively or even primarily uh, caused by... um and again, I want to use that kind of causal language a little bit carefully, but mm-hmm. caused by um, uh, caused by religion or religious people or religious ideas or whatever or practices. Um, but it is true that in I think many of the places in the world, um, the solution to many of these problems will involve enlisting those uh, religious communities. So, for example, uh, we were having a call last week at the Canadian International Council on religious freedom. Uh, we're talking about Mali and some of these other places, and uh, and we're we're talking about look, you know, there's extremist religion here, and we see this kind of going on. There's a lot of other factors that kind of come into this, right? I don't want to don't want to simplify it. Um, and uh, and that was that was the argument the UN Special Rapporteur, who was on the call, uh, Heiner Bilderfeld, made too. He said, "Look, it's it's you know the problem is not always primarily religion, even if it has a religious manifestation, but the communities that exist in these places that have any kind of heft, that have any kind of uh, ability for peacemaking, uh, are religious." Um, Scott Thomas uh, argues at the University of Bath that strong religions in weak states are still typically the rule in a lot of the world today. Uh, and that means that if you're going to have any kind of enduring solution, sure, absolutely there's a state role in that. We're, we're not trying to eclipse that. That would be silly. Um, but also you need to engage uh, religious communities and religious actors. That's only going to become more important. Uh, and, and so uh, the UN Special Rapporteur and others were making, making that argument as well. So do I think that's behind that. That's do you, do you, are you tired of the secular religious distinction? Like, do you, do you, can we blame Plato for that? You know, we can blame Plato for it. Well, you know that um, dualistic yeah. kind of, you know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, that's, well, that's kind of religious and that's kind of secular and so on. I mean, it, it, yeah, anyway. There's definitely that binary there. I mean, I, I sort of, uh, some people blame the Reformation, by the way. Um, you get the idea when you read Charles Sayers' The Secular Age, by the way, that he sort of blames the Reformation. Oh, okay. okay. So, and that's interesting. Um, I, I think, you know, by and large, the Reformation was probably a, on, on, on mass, but probably a good thing, but that's, uh, that's my bias straight out. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, part of the work that, that I do and part of the writing yep. I do underlying that is the assumption that there's a huge problem with those categories to begin with. Right, good. Right? That the secular in and of itself can be defined in like one of nine different ways, um, and the religious, um, that, that essentially when you, there is no essential transhistorical, transcultural thing called religion. Right? We've invented this term religion to kind of box or encapsulate a kind of doctrinal or dogmatic perspective on transcendence, um, and then divorce that from what we call the secular. So it doesn't have anything to do with, say, um, politics or economics or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, and in most of the world today, that doesn't make any sense, right? There's a congruity, actually, between the why and the how. Hmm. Whereas we in the West have somehow boxed our why into our private lives and into our homes and into our places of worship, and, our, and we, we are increasingly efficient at our how. 
as we kind of band together and become ever more efficient toward a goal of God knows what. Um, right. right. <laughs> um, in the most and, literal sense. <laughs> yeah, in the most literal sense, exactly. Um, and, so, and that's a major problem. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a major issue. I think part of the recovery of telos um, it, for our modern institutions in the kind of, quote-unquote, secular West, um, uh, part of that has to be deconstructing this binary between the religious and the secular, uh, I think. Um, and a number, of, a number of people, including Charles Taylor, have, I think, done a really good so, job. So, so you know my backgrounds in philosophy. David Hume would have basically just said, you know what, Rob, these are all meaningless questions, right? I mean, this, <laughs> is, this is all metaphysical tripe. And yeah. what, what's the phrase? Uh, um, um, is it committed to the flames? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's what, I mean, yeah. would you have come back with and said, okay, David, maybe you're right about those metaphysical questions, but we still have to have this dialogue. Is that how you kind of would have responded to him? I think I would have responded that, I mean, you know, Hume's had his day. Um, and, uh, you <laughs> that's know, I pretty think... funny. That's, that's the soundbite for this interview. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, um, uh, it just doesn't explain reality the way we experience it. Yes. And that's what guys like Paul Kahn do so well when they talk about the American state. They say, look, liberal political theory takes us so far in terms of understanding our experience of the state. And then there are these other experiences. It can't make sense. Right. You know, and that, that's actually pretty, I mean, empirically speaking, I mean, we're talking about observational stuff. Yep. It just doesn't yeah. make yeah. any sense. Which would have appealed to Hume, of course. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you kind of, but then you run into a dead end, right? You're yes. witnessing this stuff that doesn't seem, to, you're, this doesn't seem to have an empirical explanation. Well, now what? Um, well, I think we have to start recovering some of these conversations that, that, that have been lost. Not in a nostalgic way. I, and Taylor's well, definitely not that way. Well, and, and would you argue that that's what you're talking... When you, you know, in one of your articles, you refer to a secularist mythology. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of what you mean? That Hume-like mythology yeah. that says, oh, we can only talk about... You know, th- you want to talk about empirical, f- empirical facts? Well, here, I, I, I've got plenty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that secularist mythology is essentially uh, it's essentially done. It's a it's a story that was sort of uh, invented, and in many cases retrospectively, to explain uh, why my religion is kind of in my private home and my place of worship, and not in the public square. Um, well, it's clear that it is in the public square in a lot of places, and gosh darn, it's awfully hard to keep out. And if you believe Paul Kahn, it's actually intrinsic to the public square in some of these states. Right. It's just kind of smuggled in. Right. 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 It's like Levinas. Uh, it was Levinas. Uh, maybe it was Nietzsche who said it, but we shall always, we always have uh, God if we have language kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's that kind of idea, right? And Taylor calls these intrinsic virtues of democratic systems. Um, well, they're always there. There's, there's always a limit to pluralism. Right? And that limit is always provided by certain non-propositional truths. Yes. Right? That human beings have a basic dignity. Well, you know, where's the evidence of that? Well, uh, you know, you can kind of, you know, find your way around. But at the end of the day, human beings just have these dignities. Yes. Um, and that's where we kind of sit on it. Uh, and, and, and I think that's quite, those questions are incredibly important, incredibly important. You said, I think at the end of uh, one of your pieces, uh, you talked about the way that we're going to get away from this crazy, uh, radical uh, fundamentalism is by allowing this debate to, to, to um, flourish, yeah. to, to uh, supporting it, to, to recommending it. You know, to no, watering and nurturing it. Can you can you unpack that just a little bit? What what you meant by that? Is yeah. that is that is that kind of your your answer to terrorism? Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Actually, in, in in part, I suppose it is. Uh, again, I'm borrowing some of this from Charles Taylor, uh, yeah. and he says uh, he argues for what he calls a radical redefinition of the secular. Um, and his argument is that uh, state. 
states uh, and political communities should be galvanized around certain common political principles. Um, okay. And he, he pulls out of the French liberty, equality, fraternity, uh, solidarity kind of, uh, that he, he, he pulls into, into those. And he says, those should be the principles that govern the kind of legal framework of the nation. But, he says, we should leave, we should be agnostic as to the, the state should be agnostic as to the means by which people arrive at those things. Hmm. So, um, uh, so two examples here. Um, the first example of which is, uh, is the Catholic Church. Uh, I've just uh, done a review of this fantastic book called Catholicism and Democracy. And uh, one of the, what it does is essentially tells the story of how the Catholic Church eventually came around to embracing certain fundamental democratic notions like the dignity of human persons and religious freedom. And people think, boy, you know, didn't the Catholic Church sort of invent some of these things? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, actually it wasn't until Vatican II in 1965 that the Catholic Church actually endorsed religious freedom. Huh. And in the late 19th and early 20th century, there's a lot of anxiety, particularly in America, if you read some of the literature from the time, about whether Catholics could ever actually coexist with democracy because they were hierarchical and fundamentalist and, uh, you know, everything. It, actually, the conversation is not totally dissimilar from the one that today takes place about uh, Islam. Uh, and then Vatican II uh, and that internal process, which essentially took from about 1517 to 1965, right? The Reformation, you know, Reformation, Counter-Reformation, right up until 65. Um, it took that long for the Catholic Church to be able to internally articulate the reasons for which Catholics can support religious freedom. Wow. And those are very different reasons than liberal political theory provides, right? right? Liberal political theory says, well, we support religious freedom because, you know, uh, well, on some, on some streams, you know, religion is a privatized uh, concern and, you know, all truth is kind of God's truth and the state has no interest and so on and so forth. Catholics are not agnostic on truth, right? That's one of the reasons why... Um, it took them so long to get there because they thought, you know, look, if, if we know the truth of salvation and the truth of God, if we genuinely believe this, then how can we ever endorse a political system that lets people turn away from it? Right. Right? Fair enough question. Right. Um, and it actually took them several centuries to decide we can endorse a political system that allows people the freedom to turn away from it because the fundamental dignity of human persons insists upon free choice. And that's how they got there. So right. they, they, they right. uh, grounded it essentially in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And that's how they got there. Well, that took a really long time. I'd like to see the work plan on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can I see right? the Gantt chart on that? Two yeah, centuries exactly. worth? Wow, exactly. that, you know, yeah. think of what CETA would have done with that proposal, eh? Well, it's a fascinating, exactly, it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and, that's, and that's the one that's uh, kind of being paralleled today in, in some ways, uh, is, is Islamic communities. Yeah, um, sure. People saying, uh, you know, look, um, can political Islam fund out of being authentically Islamic democratic virtues? Right. right? For different reasons than an evangelical Christian or a Roman Catholic or a Buddhist or whatever might fund those things. They would fund them for distinctively Islamic reasons, but nonetheless it would come out of that tradition. And I have optimism for that. I think that's, I think that's possible. Um, and in fact, I think there's evidence uh, of, of it being done, although obviously there's a lot of anxiety about that. Yes. Um, oh but, yeah, for sure. But the problem is, um, and there's a huge problem and kind of in, into the second point, but the problem is that those conversations in global Islam are, among other things, fundamentally inhibited, inhibited by blasphemy and apostasy laws in a lot of Islamic countries. Right. Because there can be no hermeneutic and theological innovation so long as these things are effectively outlawed. Right, right, right. 
and that's um, that to me. And so, you know, that to me is where part of my argument ends up. That well, how, are you, must, how do you how do you have a dialogue if your tongue's been cut out? Exactly. Yeah. There must be a space for genuine uh, Islamic political theology to engage these questions. Right. Right. Um, and uh, and and I think that space must be protected. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Um, I just saw. Uh, you know, I don't. I honestly don't get my history from Hollywood, but you know, uh, every now and then it is easier and yeah. it's a lot more entertaining. Um, saw Zero Dark Thirty recently. Right, yeah, I haven't and, seen that yeah, yet. You, Everyone's you, making fun of me for it. Yeah, so. you, you definitely need to see it. I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts on it. But yeah. uh, And I think I found out that it's true. The guy who, the soldier who was responsible for killing uh, Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. uh, after, you know, I think firing three or four rounds into his body and a couple more just to make sure, mm-hmm. his line into his microphone to his, I guess, back to headquarters and his group that he's wor- uh, that he's uh, working with uh, is something to the effect of "For God and country, Geronimo." I actually turned to my wife and I said, "Really? Are, are you kidding me? Did he actually just say that? I mean, what's your reaction to that? I mean, how? I mean, you want to have a dialogue?" And I, I just, I just went, "Wow." Buddy, could you have shut it down more um, effectively and efficiently? If it, I mean, I was actually annoyed with Catherine Bigelow, the director, for including that in the film yeah. because it's just going to be so divisive ultimately. But the guy said it, and you got to yeah. wonder where that comment came from. And there's something that is inherently deeply troubling about that from a religious perspective. Yeah. Uh, from frankly, from a re- never mind religion, from a relational perspective. And we're really close to being out of time here, but yeah. but I'd love to hear your thoughts on sure. that. Sure. I mean, in some ways, the whole I mean, the whole situation is deeply troubling for me. Well, it, it is. I mean, um, yeah. you know, to have gotten there and the road that must be traveled to get there is disturbing, uh, yeah. to say the least, right? And you can kind of uh, uh, talk through all those all those different travel paths. But, no, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, in, in some ways, sure, there is, uh, there is the American story and there is the state's uh, responsibility, if you will, to kind of uh, protect its citizens. Right. But in other ways, I mean, part of what's, Part of what I think is missed, especially in, um, yeah, and, and, and this gets at these questions of secularism, but part of what is missed in these stories of Hollywood that I would love to kind of come out, and again, I haven't seen the movie, so it, yeah, may, yeah. it may come out, yeah. um, is, um, you know, the essentially, uh, the essentially sacred nature of statements like that. And it's a disturbing twisting of it, right? I yeah, mean, this, yeah. is, this is the thing, right? I mean, it, people who study religion in IR can never, you know, you should never say, should never say things like, well, you know, religion is uh, fundamentally and kind of exclusively a force for peace. Obviously, that's not true. Um, and, uh, and also, it can be twisted and perverted and all these different kinds of things. And what you see there is kind of a, a, a clash of two perversions in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my doctoral supervisor, Scott Thomas, calls it a clash of rival apostasies. Right. Um, this, is what, this is what he says, because he calls, you know, the, 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 the nation state an apostasy and extremist Islam a kind of apostasy. And um, and he says this is what's happening is a clash of rival apostasies. And, you know, boy, would it be interesting to kind of get underneath, uh, you know, a film like Zero Dark Thirty and ask those questions. Well, I couldn't help but think, you know, it, it, going into the film that maybe, maybe this could be a, a, a stepping stone to some sort of dialogue, you know, with mm-hmm. our, our Muslim uh, brothers and sisters and so on. And, uh, you know, and then we get to that point and you go, wow, I mean, Geronimo, really? <laughs> it, just, yeah. it just lacked, I mean, talk about lacking sensitivity. Now, of course, this guy didn't know that it was going to be put into a film and a screenplay, and, no. and you know. But I couldn't. Help, I can't help but 
think that his book, I Killed Osama Bin Laden, is going to be coming out in a couple of years yeah, yeah. Uh, time. And, and wow, what a, what a great way to alienate, you know, what is it, 1.7 billion people in the world? Right, yeah. I mean, I guess I would never have sort of conceived of Zero Dark Thirty as an outreach tool between America <laughs> and, and Islam to begin with. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> that's funny, Rob. Yeah, no, you're touche. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected yeah. it to really work that way. That's I mean, not right. Only were, did they, not only was there an invasion of a sovereign yes. sort of Islamic country and the assassination yeah. of, but I mean, it's no. I mean, this was probably never going to be the the tool. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't help it though. I just it it just so and maybe this was her point, but to Catherine Bigelow's credit, I mean, it just so to say it rubbed me the wrong way is is a major understatement. But, well, then uh, he said it. I mean, uh, I probably would have included it if he said it too. Um, I mean, right, right, sure. Right? I would, I wouldn't keep it out. Um, yeah, yeah. And I've heard the criticisms and the reviews that I've read from people have been, well, you know, it's kind of uh, the film leaves it morally ambiguous. It yes, makes some it of does. the statements about torture. Yep. And and so and it leaves it open. It and does. they say, you know, we wish that it would condemn it more. Well, That's exactly I mean, right. Yeah, it's an open film, I guess. So. It's very much an open film. I think the yeah. danger is that on a on a on a cursory viewing, the the message is, well, see, I told you so. Torture works. Right. Yep. That's yep. that's the danger. I I've suppose. heard that and too. Yeah. That, the, the, that would be the Michael Medveds of the world. That would be their criticisms. It seems to me, you know, um, uh, relatively superficial and sort of moralistic, if, if you know, if you will. Uh, well, Rob, I'm, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for for joining us. I hope I hope uh, we can do it again. Um, uh, Rob Joustra from uh, Cardus. That's Cardus C A R D U S dot C A. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, or just let people uh, check you out on the internet? Sure, they can they can check it out on the, on, on the website. It's pretty uh, it's pretty self explanatory in terms of uh, the the think tank work that we do and the and the policy work that we do. Uh, you know, the more the merrier. So uh, you know, please do come by. Great. And Rob's completing a PhD in religious freedom and international relations. Probably a book coming, I would imagine. Well, I mean, this is always the goal, right? Yeah, of but, course. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm just looking to the defense, and then after that, and a couple of nice glasses of scotch, we'll see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm with you for that. Well, I hope I can join you for that. And um, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to just close with a quote from uh, from an article that uh, Rob wrote uh, called Where's Our Ambassador for Religious Freedom from the Globe and Mail back in September of last year. Quote, hate it or love it, doing business or politics around the world will increasingly mean the need for religious literacy. Close quote. And I think that would be a great opening for our next discussion, Rob. Um, thanks for joining us on Face to Face. Uh, appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Goodbye.